Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Payroll Fringe Benefits Reporting and Taxation, What Employers Should Know. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speakers are Cindy McSwain and Sonia Phillips. Cindy leads AGH's Outsourcing Services Group, and her team provides payroll, accounting, funds disbursement, controller, and other financial outsourcing services to numerous clients throughout the central U.S. Prior to directing the outsourcing group, Cindy served AGH's assurance clients for 10 years, working with a wide range of middle market, closely held, and family-owned clients. She's a certified public accountant and a member of both the AICPA and the KSCPA. Cindy's been active at the board and officer level of numerous civic and professional organizations. Sonia and her team handle payroll processing, reporting, and tax filings for multi-state and multi-site companies. An AGH employee since 1991, she has expertise in both technology and employee benefits consulting, as well as payroll. Before joining the Outsourcing Services Group, Sonia managed the technology infrastructure and plan processing system for AGH's Employee Benefits Services Division. She's worked with internal and external clients to accurately assess their information system needs and manage the projects designed to satisfy these needs, as well as any necessary integration. To attract and retain talented individuals, many employers offer fringe benefits and other perks, but they may not realize those additional perks may be taxable to their employees. Cindy and Sonia will explain how you can determine what fringe benefits your organization currently offers and whether you should be reporting and withholding taxes for them. We hope you guys had a a great Thanksgiving holiday, and I'm excited to have Sonia uh, joining me back again this year for the payroll-related webinars. Um, Have no fear. Uh, Debbie, Pamela, Dana, and Rebecca, they're all still here. Uh, we're hoping to add one more staff person by the end of the year. Fingers crossed, you know, we're having the same troubles out there that, that you guys are hiring it's, people. It's tough out there. So once again this year, AGH has a lineup of four different webinars dealing with preparing for year-end. Today is the second in this series, um, and we're going to cover fringe benefits, uh, what they are and where to go find them. So you can see here, we've already had our 1099 compliance webinar um, a couple weeks ago. You can find that out there on demand at uh, the aghuniversity.com website. And then the two others that we have coming up are the year-end tax review. Uh, That is next week. And that's going to be presented by two of our tax managers, income tax managers. And then the year-end payroll, which Sonia and I will do again on uh, this year on the 16th, 12th. Oh, it's oh, on sixteenth. On the sixteenth. Sorry. <laughs> um, and you can register for that one out there as well on aghuniversity.com. So, hope hope you'll be joining us. So we're just going to kick right off with one of those polling questions. Um, got to have three. You got to answer four. three to, to be able to get the credits. Um, so we're going to engage you throughout this one um, from time to time. Uh, so this is the first one. We just kind of want to know, get a feel for the audience today and what our um, experience is with fringe benefits. Um, maybe your company doesn't even offer any of them that you know of. Um, maybe you offer a few, maybe you offer quite a few. Um, I'm guessing this year we're going to have you know, even more people that say I'm becoming a pro with this because we see some of you who are, are joining us year after year after year. So. We're going to let that poll sit a little longer. It's kind of where it usually comes in at. We're about um, 96%. So yeah. let's go ahead and close that poll, Mike. Okay. And about half of you say that your company offers a few common fringe benefits. Um, almost another half offer quite a few fringe benefits. Um, and then we have some on the outliers as well. So, so that, that 2%, those pros, we are looking to hire. So, you know, yeah. just hit me up. <laughs> All right, moving along. Now, now, so the sales job. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what we uh, want to accomplish today, uh, besides hiring people, right? Um, our learning objectives are going to be to identify the various types of fringe benefits that are out there, uh, talk a little bit about the taxability and the reporting requirements of those various fringe benefits, and then understand what the substantiation requirements are. We're also going to discuss um, how we're going to record and then report uh, the different types of fringe benefits. So at this point, I'm going to hand it over to Sonia, and we're going to start our start off with just a basic review of what compensation is. Absolutely. Thanks, Cindy, for that beautiful intro to our <laughs> webinar. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, compensation. I'm going to preface this that I've got a bit of a head cold, uh, so if I st- stumble a little bit, just forgive me, but 
we're, we're just going to plug through it. Um, so for compensation, for some of you, this is a good reminder um, or, or a review. And for others, you might be surprised to find out that compensation is more than just wages uh, that we pay an employee through their paycheck. Um, from the Internal Revenue Code, the general rule for income is that it's all income from whatever source derives, including compensation for services, fees, commissions, fringe benefits, and similar items. And then if we look at the IRS regs, it says gross income includes income realized in any form, whether in money, property, or services. So therefore, income can be realized in the form of services, meals, accommodations, stock, or other property, as well as cash. So these definitions mean that all employee compensation provided in whatever form uh, is taxable unless another section of the IRC or the code states otherwise. In general, the same guidelines are going to apply uh, to withholding income, Social Security, and Medicare taxes. As minders of the payroll, this is the time of year we've got to put our um, sleuth hats on and find all the compensation that an employee may have received. So, gross income. Compensation includes all income unless it is specifically excluded by law. We kind of mentioned that before. Again, this includes money, property, or services, where the employee benefits due to the employee-employer relationship. So, because I work for Cindy, what I get because of that relationship basically is compensation. And the income isn't necessarily just a payment. Um, it can be in the form of services, so if they do my tax return, meals, stock, cash, or other property. And keep in mind that a benefit provided on behalf of an employee uh, is taxable even if that benefit uh, is received by someone other than the employee, so a spouse or a child. So if we're giving out um, iPads to all of the kindergarten age kids of employees that work here, that's really compensation to the employee. Um, so potentially this can be employee discounts that you provide on goods or services, the same goods or services that you provide to customers. Um, if the discount's too high, a portion of that discount could be taxable. Um, it's the $25 gift cards that you give an employee for, you know, a little good job brownie. Um, it's the value of spouse travel expense. So if you're sending uh, spouses with employees to conferences and you're paying for it, that's compensation to the employee. And then let's not forget, uh, we also have to consider non-forfeitable interest in deferred comp plans. These are all uh, fringe benefits. So what are the resources out there to kind of dig into these fringe benefits? IRS Publication 15B, the Employer's Guide to Fringe Benefits. This is available on the IRS website and it is published every year. Um, it's always got a good one. Uh, the front piece of that is always kind of a little what's new. So if you've been doing this for a while, you know, make sure you read that front page there. Another great resource is IRS Publication 5137, the Fringe Benefit Guide. Um, this one, I think, is written a little bit more of a layman's term. It's a little bit easier to understand. Um, I think it has better examples in it as well. This, up, uh, this publication was finally updated in 2020. Um, we've been using it forever. Um, I think it probably went seven years or so without being updated. Um, so it's nice to know that this is a lot more current. There's not been a lot of change in fringe benefits um, and taxation, so no concern that it wasn't updated. And then another resource that you can use is IRS Form 14581A. Um, this is a self-compliance uh, checklist for uh, fringe benefit geared towards public employers, um, but the concepts in it are sound and really apply not only to governments, um, but also just to you know, any organization. So this is gonna take us to our second polling question. Um, when do you typically start pulling together your fringe benefit and year-end information? Um, already doing it, starting in November, we procrastinate, um, or we didn't realize that we needed to record any fringe benefit. So. So, so maybe we should you know, talk a little bit about what we do here at AGH to help our clients prepare for year-end and recording those fringe benefits. Yeah, absolutely. So um, every year for all of the clients that we process payroll for, uh, we put together a little year-end packet, and 
that letter comes out uh, with new listings of thresholds and tax rates, employment rate changes. Um, and then we also have a checklist we send them basically saying, hey, think about these things and answer yes or no. Have you provided us with the information? You know, are you doing auto allowances? Are you doing um, what's your deferred comp plan look like? Um, and so they're just basically returning that to us so we can, you know, help them identify if they're missing anything. Yeah. And we do that in December so that we have a whole month to kind of to let them think about it and look and um yeah, the deadline for them to return that to us was um, actually Monday. Okay. So we, so we already, actually send it in November. We send it in November, and we've already started recording them. Okay. Awesome. So it looks like Mike's closed those polls out there. Um, yay. I like what I see there. Almost half of you have already started uh, planning and gathering. Um, and, this, and the second answer there is about the same. We start in November and record in December. So it looks like a lot of you are on your game. Um, I love the 10% camp of We Procrastinate because that's usually where I live. Um, and hopefully for the rest of you there that didn't realize we need to record them, um, um, hopefully you're going to get some good insight out of this webinar tonight. Yeah. So let's get down in the weeds a bit now and talk about um, actually identifying the, the various types of fringe benefits. We've got a So where our offices are, we're, we're right down the road from the fire station. And so the, the fire trucks, whenever they go out, they engine number one you know it comes right down uh, the window that you see behind us so if you're hearing if you're hearing uh, sirens it's coming from the fire trucks that are going by they're not coming to get us <laughs> so um, our first step is going to be to identify any fringe benefits that may have been in, actually provided to the employees uh, you might have been recording this some of this information throughout the year but you also might need to gather some additional information from other sources so we really recommend that you go out and talk to your accounts payable group, if that's separate, uh, to determine if any other payments have been made to employees. Uh, these payments, they might not be fringe benefits, things like accountable reimbursements from expense reports, those don't have to be reported. Um, but you still really need to go and analyze those to determine what they are, because that's where you might find something hiding that you didn't know about. And a client called me the other day and they said, hey, on your questionnaire, you asked me about AP payments to my employees. Um, we actually gave an employee a payment that we're hoping that they pay back, but they may not pay back. Is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> if they pay it back, it was an advance that's paid back. No, no concerns there. But if they don't pay it back or if it's a loan, there's really some uh, reporting issues that you've got to handle there. Yeah. So. Good example. So additionally, we recommend that you go and talk to your human resource group. Again, if that's separate, um, talk to them about any new benefits that might have been added, especially for executives. And you know, you'd really be surprised how many deferred comp plans uh, that we hear about years after the fact that they when they were put into place. Also, think about things like company equipment, like cars uh, that your employees might be using, and how that's been treated. It doesn't mean they are fringe benefits, but those are good things that we need to look at. Yeah. So de minimis fringe benefits, that's going to include any property or service that's provided by an employer for an employee for which the value is so small in relation to the frequency with which it's provided that accounting for it's unreasonable or administratively not practical. Um, in this case, de minimis doesn't refer to a dollar value, but really it's more about the frequency. So if you're providing an occasional lunch for your employees, that's not really considered compensation. But if you have a lunch brought in on every Friday just out of the goodness of your heart, based on the regs, it's probably uh, should be included mm -hmm. as income. Now, remember that cash, that's always considered taxable. Um, gift cards, those count as cash because they're just like cash. The employee can go out and purchase whatever they want. Now, if that gift card happens to only allow them to buy a turkey at Thanksgiving, that's non-taxable because you're really giving them a turkey and you're only giving it at Thanksgiving, so it's infrequent. Um, you know, this is one of those situations, again, we keep interjecting, this is one that we do for our <laughs> employers. Um, employers are asking us all the time, really, really, really? Yeah, really, really, really. You do always have to recognize and, and determine the amount of risk that you're willing to take. Right. So we do have a lot of employers that don't report some of these things. Um, but make sure make sure you know what the rules are. Make sure that you're bringing up to, uh, to the proper people. 
and let them determine the risk and make a decision based on that. Right. So when do you have to record this compensation and when do you have to withhold taxes? As long as you're reporting it on an annual basis, at least on an annual basis, you should be fine. You can certainly record more frequently if you choose and you have the option to add the fringe benefits to an employee's regular wages and withhold on the total or you can choose to withhold at the supplemental tax rates. Um, additionally, you can treat the benefits provided in November and December as being paid in the following year. So as an example, uh, you can calculate your fringe auto usage from November to October instead of January through December. And so that allows you to kind of move it up a little bit and not have to wait till the very end of the year. So um, I'm going to pass it over to Sonia to start looking at specific fringe benefits. All righty. Um, so not only are we going to talk about some common fringe benefits, but we're also going to look at what would make these benefits excludable from income. So I always like to kind of give a, a heads up here when I say you can't do that or, or you know, shouldn't do that. I'm really talking about whether or not it's taxed or not. You can do whatever you want. Just make sure, <laughs> right? Um, it's just a matter of whether or not it should be included or excluded from income. Um, so working condition fringe benefits, these include properties or services that if the employee had paid for the property or service, the cost would have been allowable as a business expense deduction to the employee. So these have to be related to your business. Um, again, they would have been an allowable business expense deduction to the employee if the expense had been paid personally, and it must be substantiated. Um, I do want to point out here, and I, we might mention it a couple of times, um, the tax act that came out a couple of years ago, you know, we're not really allowed to itemize that much. And so these big business expenses that were allowable previously personally aren't necessarily allowable anymore. But using the old rules is how you can determine if they can be excluded right. if the employer is paying for them. Uh, cash payments or cash equivalents may be excludable if they represent reimbursements paid under an accountable plan. So this would be things like expense reimbursements. As long as you're requiring substantiation and documentation, these can be excluded. De minimis, we talked about this a little bit. Again, de minimis is, does not mean value, it means frequency. Um, you can exclude personal use of uh, photocopiers, group meals, theater tickets. Again, the frequency is with which these, uh, is, is how often that they're paid in order for them to be excludable. So um, buying tickets to send me to the football game in Kansas City, excludable because she did it once. Buying me season tickets to the football game, includable because it's, well, frequent. Yeah. <laughs> Qualified employee discounts. So if you do services or property uh, to the general, general public um, and give your employees discounts, these can be excluded based on specific limits. Um, if it's property, the discount cannot exceed the gross profit percentage times the price charged to the public. Um, anything above that um, needs to be taxed. And if it's for services, the discount can be any more than 20% of what you're charging to the general public or your clients. Again, you can offer them a bigger discount. It's just part of it's taxable or included as, as taxable income. Per the rules. Per the rules. <laughs> Determine your risk. <laughs> Uh, qualified transportation. So this includes uh, commuter transportation, transit passes, not a lot we see here in the Midwest, um, and qualified parking. As long as the fair market value uh, doesn't exceed the monthly excludable limits set by the IRS, these are not reported as taxable wages. Um, cash reimbursements for these items, if substantiated, are not included as wages either. So um, if you're doing, uh, you know, commuter transportation or transit, passes as long as I bring in my receipt and say, hey, about $30 worth of, you know, metro tickets, um, you can reimburse that. Again, it was substantiated. Um, the 2018 law, again, back to that TCGA, TCJA, right, mm -hmm. um, ex uh, suspended the exclusion for qualified bicycle commuting um, if you're from your employee's income uh, for January 1st, 2018. 2018, and then that expires January 1st, 2026. But wasn't there something that just came out about that? Yeah, so it looks like bicycle commuting uh, is, is coming back. Um, 
so, you know, we need to keep an eye on that and the legislation, and there's still more legislation that's pending out there. So, but it does look like that, uh, that that's going to kind of um, negate itself, part, yeah. negate itself, yeah. Just lots of stuff changing all the time. So uh, let's talk about travel a little bit. There's there's no tax consequences for reimbursements of allowable expenses, again, if the accountable plan rules are met. So substantiation, substantiation, substantiation. Um, however, travel must be temporary and substantially longer than the employee's workday in order to qualify, and it requires that that employee be away from their tax home on business. Also, if you're paying per diems to employees instead of requiring submission of expenses, uh, make sure that the per diem amount is at or below the allowable rate for the area to which they're traveling. So those uh, per diem rates are published out there at the Government Services Administration website, www.gsa.gov. Any per diems that exceed that rate should be included as taxable wages. So keep in mind as well that per diems for an employee on an extended basis are only allowed for one year. Anything over that, the IRS actually con concludes that the temporary assignment is now permanent and per diems no longer apply on a tax-free basis. So one thing I want to add here, um, there is a misconception that per diems don't require any substantiation or any documentation, um, but they do. Um, while you don't have to submit receipts or, or retain anything like that, you do have to make sure you have records of the travel date and the business pur purpose of the trip. So a lot of times, you know, if you're, if you're like we do timesheets, and so I've got explanations in there. So if I'm traveling somewhere, just putting in there travel to wherever for whatever typically is adequate. But you do have to make sure you have documentation of the trip. To show that it was really a trip for business. For business. For business purpose <laughs> of it, yeah. Uh, on transportation, again, to be excludable, substantiation is required. You're going to hear us say that all the time. Uh, you can exclude daily transportation between work locations, a temporary location outside the metro where um, the employee works, or another work location, and the employee's residence if that's their primary work location. This is most commonly considered to be the, the mileage reimbursement that most of us are familiar with. Uh, moving, just a reminder, again, as part of the tax reform legislation back there in 2018, beginning in 2018, an employee can no longer deduct moving expenses, nor can an employer pay or reimburse moving expenses on a tax-free basis. So, you know, I still hear people saying, hey, I'm going to give them a moving allowance because that's tax-free. It's not. So I think there's still people out there who, who aren't, aren't aware of that. Um, this change is set to sunset at the end of 2025. But again, we all know that we just can't predict anything when it comes to tax legislation. Um, the exclusion is still available in the case of a member of the U.S. Armed Forces on active duty who moves because of a permanent change of station. Right. Uh, the exclusion applies only to the reimbursement of moving expenses that the member could deduct if she or he could had, if they had paid or incurred them without the reimbursement. Right. <clears throat> Still important to ask the question of your AP folk about moving expenses. Um, although these are now taxable, many companies, you know, again, simply they're not aware of it. Yeah. And be advised that although the payments made directly to the moving company were non-taxable, not anymore. Now yeah. they're taxable. So clarify with your AP folks, not only do you ask, did you pay any employees out of AP, but also did you pay any bills Related. to another company for an employee? So that, that's sometimes a trick question. Yeah. You'll get uh, country club memberships that way. You'll get moving expenses. It wasn't paid to the employee, but it was for the employee. Right. Um, meals and lodging. So meals are excludable from wages if they're provided on the employee's premises um, and provided for the employer's convenience. So think about like a staff meeting um, or providing a meal for your employees uh, when you ask them to work through lunch. Um, you know, we bring in lunch in January, uh, basically because we've chained everybody to their desk until they can't leave. Um, so that's definitely, you know, something that's non-compensable. Uh, um, lodging can be excludable if it's on the employer's premises uh, for the employer's benefit and also as a condition of employment. Um, these are different from travel expenses, the lodging that we're talking here. 
Um, so if you if you own a hotel and you're allowing an employee to stay rent free, that does not necessarily qualify ex as excludable unless you require them to do it. It's a condition of their um, employment. So another example would be um, an apartment building owner. They require their property manager to live on premises. Um, so that can be excluded from it, uh, income. Yeah. And, and last year, we actually had this exact question came come up from a municipality who operates a municipal zoo, a city zoo. Um, and so the question came in from their parks and rec department. Uh, the zoo's accredited um, under its standards, and that requires that accreditation requires that somebody actually be on site uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The city provides residence residence on on the zoo grounds for that employee, and that employee makes security rounds after hours, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so in this case, it's that that lodging is considered an excludable benefit uh, because it's on the on the uh, employer's business premises, mm -hmm. it's for the employer's benefit, and it's actually a condition of the employment. Yes, perfect. I had forgotten about that. That's a good one. Um, employee vehicles. This one's a pretty common one, um, so we see this one a lot. Um, if you're reimbursing an employee for the use of their vehicle, as long as you're reimbursing at or under the stated rates, which do change every year, um, it is excludable. Um, if you're paying maintenance on those vehicles, make sure that you require substantiation. Um, keep in mind that reimbursement for those expenses are not excluded if you're paying the standard IRS rate for mileage. So if you've got someone where you're doing maintenance on their car, you've got to dig a little bit deeper to make sure that you're not hitting that exclusion amount. Um, if an employer provided vehicles used for both business and personal purposes, substantiation, substantiation is required. Um, you've got to document the business use um, because that's not taxable to the employee. Um, personal use is taxable to the employee or the employer can allow the employee to reimburse the personal usage. So um, as an example, I give you a log each month and then you can deduct from my paycheck what I owe you for my, my mileage. Um, again, this is one of the fringe benefits that has to be documented they have got to keep records of the personal versus business miles. Um, we'll discuss then three methods of calculating um, employer-provided vehicles. There's the lease valuation rule, the cents per mile rule, and the commuting rule. So the most common valuation method is the lease valuation rule. Um, this method uses the IRS table in publication 15B, which we talked about earlier. Um, it determines the annual lease value based on the fair market value of the vehicle on the first day it's available to the employee. This value stays in place until the employee has been assigned the car for a full four years. So it's if you start mid-year, it's half year plus four full years. You revalue on January 1st of the, the beginning of that fifth year. Um, the annual lease value is then allocated between business and personal use based on the number of miles driven. Again, so they've got to keep track what was personal, what was business, it's basically a percentage allocation. Um, you do you you also have to include a fuel charge if the employer is paying for the gas. So if you're paying for the gas, you got you've got to uh, add that to their wages as well. Um, next, we have the cents per mile rule, uh, which can be uh, used to be disallowed on vehicles with a small market value. Um, used to be like sixteen thousand five hundred, but they've actually caught the regs up. Um, so you can now use the cents per mile rule for vehicles with a market value, um, I believe it's at $50,400 uh, for this year. So this rule can be used if you reasonably expect the car to be uh, used regularly in your trade or business. It has to be 50% uh, of the miles per business usage, and the car has to be driven at least 10,000 miles in the year. So if it's a, a low mileage vehicle, can't use the cents per mile, you've got to use the lease valuation method. Um, the stated rate does include gas provided by the employer, and you can reduce the per mile rate by up to five and a half cents if the employer is not paying for gas. Um, so again, high value vehicles or um, low mileage vehicles cannot use the cents per mile rule. And then the last one is the commuting rule. Um, this is valued at a buck fifty for each one way commute. So we're allocating uh, wages based on that commuting piece. 
Keep in mind that the commuting method cannot be used for control or HCE employees, and employers are allowed no personal use. So if they go to lunch every day, that's personal. Um, if they're dropping their kids off at school on the way to work, that's personal. Um, so those types of things really you have to be pretty strict on in order to use that commuting rule. Um, next is equipment and allowances. I'm going to take a quick sip <laughs> so I don't get my coughing fit this year. It's hard to speak for a, uh, for a long time in a row. Here. I always feel like I'm yelling at the phone. <laughs> um, so any equipment provided by the employer that is an ordinary business expense or reimbursements made under, again, an accountable plan, um, there's that substantiation mm -hmm. again, um, those are excludable. But if you pay an amount to an employee as an allowance to purchase or stipend for using their, their own personal equipment, that's simply recharacterization of wages and you have to be included in income. Again, you're just giving them some money, but you're not validating that that's how much money they needed to, to, to have for it. Uniforms and clothing are excluded if they are specifically required as a condition of employment and are not adaptable as streetwear. So if a manufacturer gives their employees white coveralls, uh, paint suits, they're excludable because I don't really think that those are streetwear. I mean, no. Unless they're going to a paintball tournament. True, true that. Maybe that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you give your employees polo shirts or other logo wear, um, on a more than infrequent basis, again, um, those should be included as income as they really are streetwear, um, even if you're requiring it to be worn. So um, this is one, you know, my husband has this question, banks have this question. Um, they're providing polo shirts to their employees um, with, a com with a corporate logo on it, mm -hmm. and they're giving them five or ten a year. So that's more than... And they wear them to work. And they wear them to work. But they can wear them where it's streetwear. So technically, um, that should be included as compensation to the employees. Um, again, you can only exclude actual costs from wages. Again, so just to reiterate, allowances which don't relate to cost are always going to be included in income. All right, so awards and prizes. You know, this is where I insert stupid joke that Sonia's getting a big <laughs> fat bonus. Continue. <laughs> So remember that any award or prize that given uh, is given in cash uh, is definitely wages and does have to be included on the employee's W-2. Um, if you're providing a non-cash award, those can also be wages, um, even if it's like a random drawing, recognition awards, performance awards, and so on. Um, there are three types of non-cash awards that can be excluded if they meet certain criteria. Um, so those would be like certain achievement awards, service awards, um, certain prizes or awards that are transferred to charities um, or de minimis awards and prizes, so infrequent, again. Um, back to that 2018 PCJA, um, that tax act did clarify items uh, that aren't tangible personal property for purposes of achievement awards. So basically they clarified that you can exclude things like that gold watch um, at retirement. Um, all of those different types of things. There was no real change, just that they kind of came out and said, hey, yeah, can be excluded. Um, we also get a lot of questions about raffles and drawings from our employers. Um, so if you have a United Way campaign and you have prizes, hey, if you donate, we'll put your ticket in, we'll draw out, here's a gift card, yay. Um, are those taxable? So yeah, they are. It was a raffle, but the only reason the employee was able to participate in the raffle is because they worked for the employer and participated in the employer's United Way campaign. Um, as conversely to the office building, our office building has a Christmas party every year, and you can sign in and put in uh, your raffle tickets. But anybody in the building um, can do that. So it's not related to me working for AGH. Um, and the general public, I think, even can participate in those. So then that's not, not included in tax. So this is another one that goes back to that evaluation of your risk. Absolutely. And, and decide if, if you want to report it. We're just here to tell you what the rules are. We are just the facts, <laughs> ma'am. So for professional licenses, licenses and dues, uh, if you're directly paying or reimbursing employees for professional licenses or dues, 
these can be non-taxable as long as that employee is required to maintain that license and it's directly related to that employee's job. So like here at AGH, yes, they can take care of, you know, uh, my license, my continuing at it. Your CPA, but not my basket weaving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing basket weaving? Girl, the stress, <laughs> let me tell you, this COVID. Um, again, these are business items that, you know, should the employee pay for themselves, used to be deductible business expenses on their individual return as an itemized deduction. Um, you know, and we, we talked about that a little bit earlier that we kind of have to look back to what it was before they changed those and made those itemized deductions go away. Right. Um, you know, professional organizations fall under these same rules. Uh, social club dues, country club dues, memberships, those are never excluded. Uh, any um, any country club memberships, uh, those are always going to be included in taxable wages, or should always be included in taxable wages. Yes. Um, educational reimbursements. This is an area that we've been getting a lot of questions about. I think over the last couple of years as well. Oh yeah. So I mean, job market. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say. I think this is a part of the um, how do we uh, attract know, attract and, new employees and retain employees. Yeah. So there's actually uh, three code sections that allow educational reimbursements to be excluded from taxable wages. Um, education is a working condition fringe benefit, a qualified educational assistance program, uh, or the last one is scholarships and tuitions, uh, which that only applies to educational institutions. Right. So for working condition fringe benefits, the education cannot be needed to meet the minimum requirements of the employee's job. It cannot be part of a program that will qualify that employee for a new trade or business, and it must either be required by the employer or by law for that employee to keep their present salary, status, job, or maintain or improve skills required for their present job. So, okay, if, if we ask, is substantiation required? <laughs> yeah. I think the answer would be yes. Um, so you can exclude a graduate computer course for computer tech because that enhances their skills, but you can't exclude someone who's finishing their CPA if you hired them contingent upon completing the degree because the position required right. it. Right. Hey, we're hiring tax managers that are CPAs. Yeah. Can't pay for them to get their CPA. You, you can, but you've got to, you've got to include it. Correct. So you know we're we're hearing a lot lately about you know now we're going to start paying for education um, to get these guys through. Then a lot of that may be may be considered compensable. Um, but it still may get the job done to get people in the door. Yeah, but so if we hired a student to work in our accounting group, say, mm -hmm. um, and we said, hey, we're hiring you to be an accounting assistant, um, but we're willing to help you with tuition for your accounting-related classes, is that that's excludable, right? Um, depends if you have the, the a plan in place right? that, that is available <clears throat> to all. <laughs> Got it. So um, a qualified educational assistance program, uh, that requires that the employer have a written plan which only offers educational assistance and it doesn't discriminate against the non-highly comped. Um, and the limit for this type of plan is $5,250. And in year. that situation, you can it, it applies to any classes they want to take. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. So let's talk a little bit about dependent care assistance. Um, so an employer may provide household and dependent care services uh, to allow an employee to work and can exclude this from wages if the employer reasonably believes that the employee can exclude the benefits from gross income. So basically, if you have kids, and I know that you're claiming them, you're, you're eligible for those um, exclusions. Um, you can't use this exclusion, though, for your HCEs uh, unless the benefit program doesn't favor your HCEs. So if you've got a daycare in-house only for your HCEs, has to be included, if it's for everyone, it doesn't. Um, excluded amount should be included in box 10 of the Form W-2. Um, this is at the same place that pre-tax dependent care goes, so it's kind of the same type of thing as, as what's provided under cafeteria plan. Uh, the limits follow the same rules regardless of the method, so $5,000 per household uh, can be provided on a tax-free basis or $2,500 um, for individuals or married filing separately. Um, again, there were some changes made available in COVID legislation um, that allowed for carryover of unused health and dependent care contributions in 20 um, and 21. Um, these are different from like the, the run out periods. Um, it's actually like a full-fledged carryover. 
Um, and I don't, I can't think of any other time that you've allowed uh, right. to extend your dependent care at all. Um, these do require a plan amendment, so you do have to modify your uh, cafeteria plan document. Um, and then an interesting thing that I actually didn't recognize until, until now, which might be a little late, you actually could have amended your document to allow terminated employees to extend their run-out date through the end of the year instead of their termination mm -hmm. date. Kind of interesting. So let's talk about uh, group term life insurance. Um, when you have a group term policy um, and the coverage for your individuals is in excess of $50,000, or if it's discriminatory, um, the value of the insurance benefit that has to be included in the employee's income is calculated again, 15B, um, in the uniform premiums table. It's coming. <coughs> It's here. <laughs> so I'll pick up on this one, I guess. Um, so like she said, that you, those tables are included in publication uh, 15B. You have until the last pay period of the year to record that group term life. And I believe most policy providers are going to calculate the annual income amounts for you. Uh, but you also need to consider employees that leave, you know, maybe sometime mid-year. Uh, you'll have uh, you'll have uncollected FICA and Medicare to reconcile on your 941. And here at AGH, we like to have clean 941s, so we often recommend that you calculate the year-to-date amount so that you can withhold the associated taxes from the employee's last paycheck. Um, also, if you provide employer-paid group term life insurance for a spouse or for dependents, if the face value is greater than $2,000, the entire amount of the dependent coverage has to be included in income. Um, and I'd like to point out here that we, we're seeing more and more employees, employers that are recording that group term life on a per payroll basis. And, and what this does is it spreads the tax liability out throughout the year for the employees instead of lumping it all into one check at the end of the year. It also takes care of those terminated employees um, because otherwise, you know, do you have to calculate that uh, when they terminate or do you wait till the end of the year? Uh, if you do it on a per payroll basis, that means that those terminated employees are going to be up to date on the group term life if they term mid, mid year. Yeah, true that. <laughs> She's back. There goes my bonus. <laughs> okay. So your employees don't notice it when your taxes come out a little bit at a time. Right. So, so that takes us to the end of, um, you know, the detail. That was a lot of down deep in the weeds, but we think it's always important to, to make that deep dive. Uh, there's a significant number of items that can be provided to employees, you know, that we've walked through that, you know, we're going to identify and we're going to value. And, you know, again, remember that substantiation for qualified payments in most of these scenarios uh, can make these excludable right. if, if you've got the proper <clears throat> documentation out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. All right, shall we hit up that polling question number three? Let's do it. So here we just want to kind of know, um, you know, which of these which of these fringe benefits does your organization currently offer? And, and you can, you know, click multiples here. Um, can, I'm going to have you open that chat box just to see if we've got anything that we're supposed to be paying attention to. Nobody's, nobody's screaming at us. Right. Nobody's asking questions. Or <laughs> awesome. Back and there. and the other thing too, if we don't get questions answered today and you submit them, um, we're really pretty good about answering those questions uh, offline afterwards and shooting out an email to to let you know what's going on. Yeah. <clears throat> so are you feeling better? I mean, for those <laughs> of you, so for those of you who are joining us for the first time this year, um, you know, this is kind of an ongoing thing, and, and it is. It's hard as we as we talk and talk and talk. You get that little tickle in your throat, and she's fighting something anyway. So um, every single webinar that we have given, I have had a coffee <coughs> in the middle. So it just means, Cindy, be prepared because you're going to take over at some point. <laughs> We're a good little tag team. So. <laughs> All right. Looks like Mike's closed those out. Thank you, sir. Oh, did you um, even talk about them? Um, Let's see, looks like most everybody, majority have professional licenses and dues. That's pretty common, especially in those professional service companies. Um, employee vehicles, that's actually over 50% of the people attending today have um, vehicles. Then um, a third of you have dependent care and moving expenses. Moving expenses, make sure those are reportable. 
All right, so let's go ahead and, and move along, see if I can keep my cool here. So now that you've identified the fringe benefits, you do need to record them in your payroll system. So for each benefit, you need to identify the taxability and verify that your payroll system is set up accordingly. Um, most of the fringe benefits are taxable uh, wage buckets for all the, of the tax buckets and agencies. Uh, but keep in mind that group term life is excluded from both federal and state unemployment. For, for most states, there's a few where it's included. Um, another thing is that uh, while personal use of an auto is considered taxable wages, well, it's considered taxable wages for everything, um, you have the option not to withhold any federal income tax and just the report the wages. Um, and I think this is the only benefit where you have the option not to withhold the income tax. Um, if you do choose to do so, make sure the employee's been notified. And then also keep in mind, you don't know um, an employee's tax situation. So in some employees, this may be a benefit because they paid enough in, but um, for others, it may cause um, them to have an underpayment of taxes and they'll owe at the end of the year. Um, since fringe benefits are supplemental wages, we thought this would be a good time to review those rules as well. Um, supplemental wage payments are anything that aren't regular wages. So bonuses, commissions, severance pay, really even overtime and vacation um, are considered um, supplemental wages. And so the rules say there's a couple of different ways that we can tax these payments. First rule you need to be aware of, if, if an employee's made more than a million dollars in the year, um, then you will always need to withhold at the 37% rate, just bingo, done. Mm -hmm. Um, if they've made less than a million, like probably most of us, um, then you determine if you're making the payment and including it with regular wages, is it all lumped together? Um, or are you splitting it out on the pay stub? Um, and then there's two different ways you can do that. If it's all lumped together, just do the withholding at the W-4. Um, but if you're splitting it out, there's a couple of different ways that we can do this. Um, again, <clears throat> Using the supplemental method, we can put that bonus on its own check and withhold at the 22% rate. Um, you'll also have supplemental rates for each state. So if you're in other states uh, than Kansas at 5%, make sure you check that rate. The other option is to do it concurrently with other wages. Um, again, you're just going to lump all those together and pay at the W-4 um, withholding that's in place. Um, the third method, where there's either no concurrent wages um, or you want to split it out and do not at supplemental rates, um, you do basically have to do the calculation um, just like number two, and then you're going to split it out. You would take um, the regular paycheck, uh, calculate what the regular taxes would have been, and then you subtract it from the total calculation in the concurrent calc, and the difference is what you would withhold from the supplemental tax check. I hate that one. <laughs> I, I don't know if I explain it well or not. Nobody uses it because uh, it's really just kind of cumbersome to use. <clears throat> the other thing to think about if you decide that you're going to pay the employee portion of taxes um, on any of the fringe benefits that we've discussed, remember that the payment of those taxes is also uh, classified as wages. So you do need to gross up the earnings using that formula that we see there on the slide. Uh, but when you do that, you know, think about has the employee hit the FICA wage limit because you don't have to gross up for FICA? Um, if they have exceeded $200,000 in Medicare wages, then you've got the additional 0.9%. Um, so you've got to think about that. So here's a little calculator that we have. Um, this is something that if you want, um, just be sure and put in the notes that you'd like to see um, a copy of this and we can email it to you. Um, again, we've got a couple of different examples here where we're listing the tax rates in the purple, and so we can see Debbie um, has already hit the FICA threshold, so no FICA withheld for her. Um, again, I'll point out, if you're doing this for auto, you don't have to include the federal income tax withholding. Um, but another thing you might need to look at uh, when you're doing gross-ups, not only for fringe benefits, but other types of things as well, um, <clears throat> some of these are going to be subject to your 401k. So the additional wages aren't really fringe benefits, they're just wages. And so depending upon your plan document, you might not also need to gross up for 401k, should you choose to do so. A lot of times employers are saying, hey, I don't want uh, this to have any impact on my employee's take-home pay. 
So in that case, you would be having to look at adding in those 401k amounts. Uh, once the fringe benefits have been recorded in payroll, you also want to make sure they're reported on the W-2 correctly. <clears throat> this will include verifying your wages paid on the W-2 or reported on the W-2, um, as well as any special coding that may apply. So this is something we talk about every year, and you're, you're going to hear it again probably in our, our next payroll year-end webinar as well. But we recommend that it, at least no less frequently than annually, so at least once a year, that you prepare a reconciliation of your wages, deductions, and the taxable wages. And that's whether you outsource your payroll or whether you, you do it internally. So one easy way to do this reconciliation is by creating a spreadsheet like the one we've got listed here that lists out all your earnings and the taxability based uh, upon the different tax buckets. So this, the one we've got shown here is actually the one we use internally in our service payroll service bureau here at AGH. Each earnings code has designations for each tax bucket in the columns to the left of the highlighted year-end amounts column. Uh, earnings codes that are going to be includable in taxable wages, those are designated with a, a one. Uh, while those are, while those wages that are going to be excluded are designated with a zero. Uh, the columns to the right of that highlighted year-end amounts then include or exclude our different wages in the appropriate column based upon those designations based on a, a formula that's over there. Um, in this example, we're going to look at uh, fringe, fringe insurance. Uh, that's includable in taxable wages for all of the different buckets, so the columns all list a one. However, then if we um, look at reimbursed expenses that are a little bit later down, those are not includable as wages, assuming that an accountable plan is in place, and so those reflect zeros in all, all of those columns, so then it just pulls across. So we're going to look at the exact same thing. Um, the exact same logic applies as we look at our deductions. <coughs> so you'll note that here on this one, the 401k line actually has a negative one in the uh, federal and state income tax columns as these contributions actually reduce our taxable wages for those buckets. Uh, and, and then here's another little trick that we like to use. When we set up our payroll items, we try to use um, a standard naming scheme. So items that are deducted on a pre-tax basis, those have a 125 or section 125. Right. Um, at the, as the last three digits of their naming codes. And then we also list employer deductions with an ER as the last two digits. So it just really makes it, as you look down this column, it makes it easier to pick out um, if you're calculating a tape or if you're creating a short list or if you're just trying to visually see, see it. <clears throat> now, once we've totaled up all of the buckets, we also want to make sure that certain taxable wage buckets uh, are the same and that they equal each other. So in this example, we want to verify that the federal wages equal our state wages. And then we've gone one step further down there on the very far right corner by listing the taxable wages for each state uh, to make sure that the sum of the parts equal a whole. Most employers can usually verify that their federal tax wages plus 401k, plus 401k deductions are going to equal FICA and Medicare wages. Uh, the FICA wages should equal wages taxable for federal unemployment unless you have group term life, uh, and that is always excluded from federal unemployment. Now, keep in mind that certain states don't follow the federal rules for certain deductions, so there might be circumstances sitting out there where this logic doesn't hold true. And as an example, Iowa and Texas both include pre-tax deductions when calculating the state unemployment taxable wages. So not only do you have to know the Fed stuff, you've got to know the state stuff as well. Now, once you've prepared your tax and wage reconciliation, the next step is going to be to compare those totals to your W-2 totals. Um, many payroll software packages are actually going to have a type of a W-2 audit report that's going to list these totals out for you. And then remember that your 941s from each of the four quarters of the year should match the totals on your W-3 for federal wages and taxes, as well as FICA and Medicare. So this is where COVID rears its fun, fun head again. Um, you know, so typically the FICA and Medicare listed on your W-3 is going to be equal to half of... Yeah the FICA and Medicare listed on the total of your 941s because W3 is the employee portion, just split the 941 in half. But with the 4,352 revisions of the 941, um, some of those FICA taxes have moved all over the board on that form. So just kind of pay attention when you're doing that reconciliation to your 941s so you're kind of picking the right bucket and make sure you understand how all that stuff looks. Again, 
if your 941s and your W3 don't match, you're going to get a notice from the SSA and have to explain it. So better to make sure it's right yep. now. Another piece of information that you need is to identify any special codes that you have to populate in box 12 of the uh, W-2. A couple of the more commonly used fringe benefit codes are going to be code C, which is for group term life over 50, 50K. Uh, codes D and AA, those are your 401K and Roth contributions. Um, and uh, there's also codes for third-party sick pay, deferred comp, and others. So are there any gotchas or other items that we need to be aware of? Um, I think the one that um, we get a lot of questions from non-payroll clients relates to the pension check box on the W-2 mm -hmm. um, that can be confusing. So that box should be checked if the employee is a participant in a defined benefit plan like a pension. So that's not in payroll. So you have to determine that. Um, it should also be checked if they're deferring in a retirement plan, which payroll knows about. Um, or if the employer has made contribution on the employee's behalf, even if they're not deferring. So if you've got a profit-sharing plan that goes to all your employees, you need to make sure that box gets checked for the employees who've got a contribution but aren't deferring. Okay. So um, we're getting near our time, so we're, you know, we're going to push through the rest of this here. But um, other things that we definitely need to consider and possibly enter before the end of the year is going to be deferred compensation. Um, it's going to be third-party sick pay that's applicable, and there's actually different arrangements with third-party providers to make sure that you understand who's responsible for what. And keep in mind if payments are made after the employee's death or payments are attributable to employee contributions made with after-tax dollars, the payment amounts are not subject to tax withholding. So this is one when we get clients that uh, are new to us or converting over. Um, three-party sick is often a big notice generator especially if you don't have a lot of short-term or long-term disability that's reported. Um, make sure you understand the arrangement, who's doing the W-2s. If your third party's doing it, then there's actually a form that you have to complete um, and submit as well so that you don't get a notice, third parties like pay recap. Okay. So to summarize, um, we've been through a lot of stuff today. Um, you want to make sure that you go out there and identify, find, value the, the various benefits that are provided. Uh, then we want to make sure that we properly record those in your payroll system. And then lastly, that we report the fringe benefits on your year-end compliance forms. Yep. Okay, so that brings us to our last poll today. We just kind of want to check in and make sure, see how your experience was with this webinar. Yep. Um, we do have a couple of questions that I thought were good that I'd like to go ahead and address. Okay. Um, one question was, should 2% owner health insurance payments be taxed at the supplemental tax rate? Very interesting question. Um, Subest owner health really only gets reported in box one of the W-2 and the appropriate state box. I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head. But you do not have to withhold any income tax from it when you record it. Why not? Subest owner health actually is kind of an in and an out on the owner's personal income tax return. So really, probably there's no tax liability added at all. So again, if you're uh, recording subest owner health, you do not need to include um, federal withholding on that. And another question, can an employee fill out a new W-4 to request no taxes be held from supplemental wages? Yes, of course. Um, technically, you should not be accepting if you think it's a fraudulent W-4. Um, mm -hmm. We see a lot of people do this because, and, and you don't know what their true tax liability is. They may have other sources of income, this, that, or the other. Um, but if you allow employees to do that, make sure, make sure that you get another W-4 back from them. After that. After that. Yeah. Because let's say they do that in February and they never submit another W-4, they're not going to have any taxes withheld. Um, they'll be happy until the end of the year. They'll be happy until the end of the year. You're not responsible. You're not liable. You did what the employee told you to, but they are not going to be happy with you. Yeah. Um, so just be careful about that. So. so let's pop in and look at that last poll question that I think is now closed. Um, oh, thank you. It's always good to know that most of you think um, that there was lots of helpful reminders, and we're always happy to 
create questions for you guys to go look at. I think next year we're going to change that to, hey, I was just here to hear Sonia cough. <laughs> and we appreciate you guys, too, because I, I know I always need my continuing ed as well. So um, flip to the next. And um, I think at this point we'll say thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's always a pleasure. Uh, shoot us some questions if you have some. Otherwise, we'll flip it back over to Mike. Thank you.